1: What about your commute? Was it like mine? It took me two and a half hours on Highway 1 this morning, coming in from 200th in Langley into downtown Vancouver, mostly just because of ice, and that's not supposed to be the difficult commute. What about tomorrow morning? We will be in for fresh snow overnight, up to a foot in some areas, most areas getting between 10 and 15 centimeters in the lower mainland. Are we ready for this? Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West has been noting a need for area municipalities to do more for preparations. Port Coquitlam, by the way, it's been pretty good so far, but that's not the case everywhere. Brad West joins us now. Brad, where do we stand for preparations now, according to what you're hearing from others outside of Port Coquitlam? Is it going to be? Uh, are we going to be ready?
2: Well, I can't speak for outside of Poco, Bruce, but uh we are ready in Port Coquitlam. Um our crews have been working flat out since uh we experienced the first uh snowfall and we've been uh preparing for this. Uh you know, this is one of those basic responsibilities of the municipality. It's the type of thing that people send their tax dollars to City Hall for and you know we believe in our city that we got to get it right and so i'm incredibly proud of the work that our crews are doing they they are working incredibly hard they are working overnight uh... we are bringing in additional people uh, we're making sure that all of our vehicles are being well maintained. So it's really a team effort. I know you know our mechanics are working really hard. They're keeping all of those plows in good working condition. We're making sure we're fully stocked on our salt and our brine. You know, all of the the pieces are coming together to make sure we can execute on our plan. And at the end of the day. Uh, that's what it's all about. None of this stuff really happens by surprise. you know we we know it's coming, and so it's about having a plan, being prepared, having the resources in place to execute on the plan, and then get the job done
1: yeah it's uh we've got a forecast I mean not everything in life has a forecast that you can rely upon that's based on models and experts um but we do have a forecast and If you are about to plan at the last minute, uh, we do know that uh, overnight tonight, there's going to be up to half a foot of snow in many areas. That is a given. That should be prepared for. Brad West, you know, it it always surprises me because there are two very basic and they're not complicated things. But when it comes to leadership from a mayor or from council, people turn to garbage or collection pickup and snow. Those are two, like, just such obvious issues that uh, people react to in a second. How come some areas don't get it?
2: (laughs) Um, You know, I I think sometimes there's a a tendency in, in government to bypass, you know, what some people would consider maybe boring or mundane, and they look for something flashier. Uh, you know, governments, at all levels, they they love their announcements, right? Big announcements, big pronouncements. We're going to, you know, we're going to solve this. We're going to end that. Um, and, and no doubt, look, there there's big societal challenges that we have in all of our communities that we need to work towards improving. But I always say, we we have to get first things first, and we do have a basic responsibility as municipal government to deliver on the core services that people are paying for, Bruce. I mean, that's the key thing. This is, you know, this is not one of those gray areas. People send their tax dollars to City Hall for basic municipal services, and snow clearing is one of those, and that's why uh, you need to make sure that you're approaching it with the – the seriousness and the responsibility that it, uh, it requires. Because at the end of the day, if you don't get it right, the consequences to uh, your residents are, are felt uh, very significantly. People can't get to where they need to go, late to work, kids, you know, not going to activities, maybe families not able to come together. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time with our crews who do this work. I've had the opportunity to do a a plow ride along because I want to see for myself, uh, you know, what they experience. And they are such a dedicated group of people. They know that they're taking time away from their families during the holidays so that we can all be with ours. Uh, And and so, you know, my hat is off to them. They do a, a great job for us.
1: You know, Brad West, I guess in a perfect world or your perfect world, people would live, work and play only in Port Coquitlam. But, you know, that's not a reality. Port Coquitlam residents live, work and play in many different uh, areas. Um, you know, they have to commute through several different municipalities. So it's not just Port Coquitlam. You could do all the best planning in the world, but for lifestyle, a commuter could actually be traveling for daycare or something very important, medical appointments, to another area. So my question is, do mayors talk about these issues much, like snow clearing? Because what happens in Surrey could affect somebody in Poco.
2: No, for sure. And I hear all the time from people who have had the experience being, like, look, we're a very connected region. There's no question about it. I think there's there's very few folks who spend all of their time within the borders of their own city. They're all over the place. That That is the reality of Metro Vancouver. Uh, and so we got to think like that when it comes to how we plan and execute on the things that people need. And uh, do mayors talk about it? Not enough, Bruce. Um, you know, there are gatherings that happen of, uh, of municipal representatives um, throughout the year. Uh, you know, and often, again, the the conversation tends to some of those really, you know, larger issues that we're all grappling with that we need to be talking about, you know, housing and homelessness and, you know, things like that. Um, I also think there's a great opportunity to be sharing uh, best practices uh, and strategies and approaches when it comes to uh, Things that are, again, the, the basic municipal responsibility, like snow removal. There, there's no reason why we can't be sharing uh, our experiences and finding out how to improve. But I, I'm really proud of the work we do in Port Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. And we can learn from other cities. Maybe they do something that we can incorporate. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's what we should be striving for is that improvement to deliver better service for our residents. At the end of the day, That's the business we're in. That's what this job is about. And so uh, I'm all for, you know, coming together and finding those opportunities to learn from each other.
1: Okay, but top level, what is, Brad West, the magic sauce that Park Coquitlam has when it comes to snow removal? What recommendations, if somebody is... I'm not going to pick on any municipality, but, uh, you know, there are several that have the similar topography to Port Coquitlam, uh, about the same size, have hills, uh, windy roads. What advice would you give? Does it come down to training? Does it come down to putting more money into uh, snowplow removal? What would you pass on?
2: I I think, first off, it's preparation. Having a a plan, not be scrambling at the last minute to try and – you know, addressed a situation as it's unfolding. We've seen what that has resulted in uh, in our last dump of snow because then the uh, plows can't get where they need to be and there's already congestion on the road. So it's planning ahead. Uh, Preparation is key. And then at the elected official level, it's about uh, providing the necessary resources to get the job done. You know, when cities are looking at their budgets and they're, you know, um, looking at you know maybe where they can cut back a bit or you know maybe less here and more there you know I think that snow removal is one of those things where people say well you know maybe we'll not get a it won't be a bad year for for snow and maybe we can shave off some of the the funding there um, and then you get in a situation like this and you know you're kicking yourself so we make sure that our uh, snow removal is well resourced I've never heard a resident of this city complain about that. Uh, you know, it, again, this is the type of thing that I think people are willing to pay for. You know, they, they, they want to, you know, they want to make sure that the service is there when they need it. And so that's another piece of this for sure, Bruce, that people can be looking at. Are, are we resourcing this job adequately? There's a job that needs to get done. It requires resources. Do we have enough in place that the job gets done?
1: You know, Brad West, I hope uh, some of the ears are open for uh, those in other areas and perhaps even some other levels of government. Mayor Brad West, uh, thanks for your time and best of luck tomorrow during the uh, morning commute.
2: Thanks very much. Stay safe, everyone. Have a Merry Christmas.
1: You know, not all severance packages are alike. Yeah, no kidding. What makes the difference? Well, sometimes it comes down to the difference between employers employers or other times it may be the circumstances. I call these people the lucky five. Five people getting $1.3 million in severance when David Eby became premier. Why? Well, the payout is just one part of a very nice set of circumstances for severance payments funded by the BC taxpayer, and it does come into play in this case during the transition from NDP Premier John Horgan to NDP Premier David Eby. Didn't even switch parties. The total had gained $1.3 million for just five people. person that's written about this and some of the circumstances behind that joins us now. It's Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Rob, you know, uh, one has to wonder, is this uh, really all that surprising? I mean, who are these people And why are they getting this sort of severance?
3: Well, the people are sort of senior officials in government who are appointees who were fired by uh, the incoming administration of David Eby, that transition from John Horgan to David Eby. And when you fire people, uh, you are obligated to pay them severance uh, under the rules that the province has. And we often see this when a government changes. So when the NDP took power... In 2017, there was a bunch of what they thought BC Liberal kind of appointees that they let go. And the payments, uh, the severance payments ended up being almost $13 million for 130 some odd staffers. So we we do see it. The issue here, though, is that the government didn't change. It's still the NDP. It's one NDP Premier to another NDP Premier. And some of these positions, um, the payouts are astronomical. And so that's kind of where the, the, you know, the pause comes from when you look at this, this story is, hmm, okay. Was that totally necessary and were the amounts, um, you know, quite
1: high? Is it because there is a huge difference between a John Horgan and a David Eby? I mean, as you point out, uh, we often see this and expect it with a change in party, change in government. But this isn't that.
3: Okay, well, there's a, there's a few things. You know, like, for example, the chief of staff is one of these five positions. Jeff Meggs, he's a former Vancouver city councillor. He was, you know, chief of staff to the premier is kind of like your top strategist, your most confidential advisor. And when the premier changes, the chief of staff always changes, always. And, you know, as, as chief of staff, you got to make a decision whether you resign with the premier who's resigning or you choose to stay on and allow yourself to get fired. And the difference is if you resign, you don't get severance. If you sit there and wait till you get fired, you do. So Jeff Meggs got three hundred and almost forty thousand dollars in severance. He'd been making two hundred and twelve thousand dollars a year. Um, you know, I, he's legally entitled to it, and no one's disputing that. It's just more of a question at, at you know, at seventy-one years old, um, after doing that job with John Horgan, who chooses to retire, and John Horgan didn't get severance for retiring. Do you retire with him, or do you sit there and wait until you're fired? To collect your severance from the public, and that and that's what happened in that case. Um, you know, these are these are officials that David Eby has different people in mind to do the job. The head of the government communications branch, uh, who got a four hundred and thirty thousand dollar payout uh, for severance, so David Eby could replace him with someone else. Um, the head of the civil service, the deputy minister to the premier, that's another you know thing that. That uh, the premier wants to put his own person in there from the last premier's person, and that person, Lori Wanamaker, she got a $590,000 severance, uh, which is huge, um, and plus her pension because she'd been doing that job in the civil service for a long time, 30 years, and was appointed to the BC Hydro board right afterwards, which pays you know 30 to 90,000 depending on the different rules there. So that's a pretty good retirement package at the expense of taxpayers and look there's a there's a formula for these things that the government uses it's based on the the years that you've been there it's based on your salary before you were fired and it's based on your future years of employability and age and things like that so the you know it's not like the premier set these numbers but they are what they are they're
1: public funds So is this going to be something you think that's going to kind of weigh on the government? Do they have to address it or is it just going to fade into the background?
3: Yeah, I I think it'll fade into the, I mean, you know, not to be cynical, uh, but I think it'll fade into the background because people have seen this before and they, um, you know, it's Christmas and they got other things on their mind. They might be waiting at BC Children's Hospital for hours uh, because of the flu and RSV that's going around. They might be trying to make a credit card payment or dealing with a rising interest rate. You know, it looks obscene, these numbers, and um, because they are obscene, you know, (laughs) the almost $600,000 to sever someone out is is an obscene amount of money. But um, it was a decision that was made and it was paid out. I think I wrote a column about this where I did highlight one particular person who looked like this is the deputy chief of staff premier amber hawken who looked like she was retiring and sent out a note to the staff saying that she was moving on and choosing to go on to a new adventure in her life and still got severance anyway and typically that's not the case in this case there was some sort of constructive labor relations dismissal thing going on involving the job and the job changing and she just accepted the job from david eby and then quit on or was fired on the day that he was sworn in. And so she managed to go from just changing jobs to getting uh, $189,000 in severance. And so those, that does draw a question. I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure if the public funds were well used there, and I'm not sure the public funds were well used in some of those other payments uh, either. But it's a system that exists, and it's a formula that exists, and all governments have used it, And I I know, you know, if people want to debate it, I think uh, talking about whether it should be reformed or capped or altered or certain jobs should, you know, um, have certain things that when you accept the job that you're accepting a certain level of risk. I don't know. There's there's also a reason for it, too. And that a lot of these jobs are precarious. And sometimes that's a a fair way to compensate someone when they're politically on the edge. Uh, But it's a stiff bill. For taxpayers to, it sure to swallow at this time of year.
1: Do they go to a human resources to ask questions about their best uh, interests in uh, in departing? And if so, do we uh, have any access under Freedom of Information to find out what those emails may have been? Something like, uh, How do I get the most money when I go to leave? If I was to leave, uh, what are the best circumstances to put it under?
3: Yeah, well, they do have access to, to HR specialists. There's a whole government bureaucracy that that uh, talks about people and their pensions and their payouts and their salaries and their severances and so they they for sure do. I'm not sure we would get access to that. There's there's privacy rules under FOI involving people's, you know, personal information and their personal finances that we may or may not get even though it's public money. Um it, it's a good question, I guess, and it it might be something someone looks into for these cases. I I think the larger issue though is looking at this system and I'm wondering if it could be tweaked in some way because if this government ever changes and it will one day you know yep. change whether it's another premier or another party taxpayers based on the last two government changes can expect them to shell out probably upwards of 15 million dollars in severance payments just for the change in government because that, the last couple have been you know approaching that range and is that a good use of money? Is that the cost of doing business? Is it the cost of changing governments? I, I, don't, I don't know. But it's a question that, you know, some sort of independent panel or, or independent group or ex- experts might be able to approach and analyze for government. So our, so we have a, some more clarity on whether this all makes sense.
1: Indeed. Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Switching it up, let's talk about, if we must, Elon Musk. Yes, if we must. Uh, Yesterday, interesting, coming from a very controversial CEO and now owner of Twitter, who's already come up with so many different tweets. Well, this one, I think, takes the cake. And we're waiting with bated breath to see the results. Yeah, he tweeted out a Twitter poll. And I will read this. This is Elon Musk from yesterday, more than 24 hours ago. His question... Should I step down as head of Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. Should he step down? Well, 43% said no, meaning 57%, the only other alternative here, 57% say yes. Meaning, yes, Elon, you should step down as CEO from Twitter. So, what is this? Is it a temper tantrum? Is it a stunt? Who knows? But uh, talking about Elon Musk and his ongoing controversial involvement with his new company is Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thanks for joining us again.
4: As always, great to be here.
1: You know, Jesse, uh, first of all, i got to ask you, um, you haven't seen any other responses uh, from Elon on Twitter, have you? Because I'm scrolling down, and as far as I can see, he's retweeted something but not really much in about 21 hours.
4: Now, I I don't know what you would do if you were a billionaire, but the idea of spending this much time on Twitter and trying to stir the pot would only be beneficial if it benefited what his long-term goals would be. And if the long-term goal is rebranding Twitter and making money, well, he's trying to figure out which audience is going to favor what he wants to do in that space. And the majority of journalists who are looking at Uh, addressing misinformation or trying to get factual information out, he's not very happy with. So we've seen him uh, delete their accounts. We've seen him try and kind of advocate for free speech in the space, but also when the free speech is directed towards him or critique of him, we see accounts getting banned or or their content being removed. And now we're also seeing the idea of linking to other things on the platform being discouraged and potential uh, fines coming from the European Union. So what Musk is doing with this seems to be either dive the company and claim bankruptcy or, at the end of the day, find a whole new audience and potentially not have to run it because if you create a poll and say, hey, the the public wants me out, I'm just going to step aside, maybe he's just going to go to the next plaything that he has because now this is getting boring for him.
1: You know, I I wouldn't put it past him to also, uh, and this is just me, but do a little bit of wordplay here and uh, come out with something like, you know what? I am no longer CEO of Twitter because Twitter is no longer going to exist, but we are going to change that name like you talked about, like we've been talking about. I am now the CEO of X or whatever. Um, Do you think that's a possibility?
4: hundred percent. And the reality of it is, is that like, look, I, I applaud Elon Musk's uh, you know approach to how, how Tesla as a company has come to be. I applaud the SpaceX program. We all watched those rockets tumble down when they were trying to land them. And when they successfully landed, it was amazing. And I, it, it comes to that idea of scientists coming together and people figuring out a better way of doing something. There is no drawing of people who have been negatively impacted on Twitter to the table. He is not bringing in female journalists and saying, hey, what's your experience on this platform? He's not bringing in the people who fought tooth and nail to try and fight misinformation during COVID, who sat there and said, what was it like for you as a human being receiving death threats? Because all you did was share the known science or the accepted science that people would say, here's what we're facing. He is saying, if we want to have vitriol, if we want to have people target individuals, we're going to put those people back into the platform and then see what happens. And so for him to reinstate individuals and say, well, we're going to rebrand. OK, but it, part of it already exists. It's already a right wing conspiracy laden environment. If you want Twitter to be that, you're going to lose your investors. You're going to lose the millions upon millions of people who use this as a bastion of democracy and communication. So within that, Musk himself might be looking to rebrand. The question is, will the rebrand make money? Which audience will it be?
1: You know, it's interesting uh, following Twitter, as you do, uh, with all social media, it was not the number one social media channel uh, for the last few years. At one time, I guess it was a lot more powerful or a lot more um, closer to the top. But Facebook and even TikTok, I guess, have supplanted it. Uh, But since Elon Musk took over, we're talking about him a lot more. And we're talking about Twitter a lot more. Are we seeing more interest, not money, but more interest in Twitter, do you think?
4: But I, I haven't vacated Twitter because I still believe in the platform itself. I still follow people who value the ideas of addressing misinformation and content that's re- relevant not only to our municipal, provincial and federal ideals, but the idea that I can you know, find out something in real time, like what's the score in the World Cup without having to watch it. The platform itself still has substance. The thing is, is that if he wants people talking about the platform, yes, having an exuberant CEO who's doing all sorts of things, just showing the pot at 3 o'clock in the morning because he's putting out a tweet that's making people go, what is this cryptic BS? There are parts of that that are very much effective in the way he does business. The question becomes, is it people talking about Twitter that makes money, or is it the idea that people use Twitter that makes money? And the thing is, he's always... Already said, hey, I got rid of the bots and usership, and actual usership has risen. But advertisers have left the platform, and that, and I say advertisers in the sense of mainstream. We would see their products on, on television names. commercials, big yeah. company names. All I'm seeing is garbage advertisements for products I would never even consider buying. And I've actually gotten to a point now where I traditionally don't. I'm not too bothered by advertisements, but I'm blocking them. An example. I'm seeing advertisements for weapons to be sold on the platform, a a, a collapsible baton with spring-loaded mechanisms. That's actually illegal in Canada, but I'm now seeing it in my Twitter feed based on how uh, prominent uh, uh, advertisers have left the platform. He's settling for the people who are willing to sell you the garbage that maybe might be something you buy uh, if you're looking for a weapon, but never expecting to see it on Twitter.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm seeing a Catholic prayer app uh, pop up more often on mine. But, uh, you know, its uh, I, I don't understand how they figure out the algorithms, but they have them. And I trust uh, that they must be somewhat effective. Um, And
4: just as a a note, Bruce, in that space, like the algorithms for TikTok are dead on. Things I'm seeing on TikTok for my advertisements, those are dead on to the things I would ideally purchase. These are gifts I would probably get for family. This is so far out of right field when it comes to the stuff on Twitter. I don't think it's based on the algorithm. It's based on, hey, let's just get anything to anybody so we can say that we've got uh, eyes on a promoted tweet.
1: Jesse Miller, this time next year, is Twitter going to exist as Twitter?
4: I hope it does, only without Musk at the helm. I hope that he sees a, a purchaser who wants to buy it and use it for something better than what he sees it as. But ideally, all the people who built Twitter to what it is, and if they're not working there anymore, I'm hoping they build the next big
1: thing. Well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Interesting story, especially like you. I I love the platform. I I love Twitter, um, but I'm also very, very curious to see what happens in the days, weeks, months ahead. Jesse Miller, have a great holiday ahead. Thank you, Bruce. Big announcement uh, today from Jobs Minister Brenda Bailey, who says the University of BC, UBC, Simon Fraser University, And University of Victoria, along with Vancouver Island University, they're all going to receive some more funding in the amount of about $4.3 million for government research and innovation. All this to help fund projects in the fields of health, technology and natural resources an amazing announcement uh, for many of the innovators and people working in that space that definitely need some of the projects to get underway or else take them to the next level. She also said that uh, the funds will contribute to 18 projects. These are projects that are already underway at the universities, and we've seen that in the last little while, some amazing technology coming out for anything from sustainability to uh, health, things that are just amazing in healthcare and uh, the bio health space. Uh, certainly, Brenda Bailey does have that background in technology and uh, has an understanding of it. She joins us now. We've got her on the line. We were waiting for a moment as we were just trying to connect, but I think it's safe now to say good afternoon to Brenda Bailey.
0: Hi, Bruce. Good afternoon.
1: Well, good afternoon to you. You know, four point three million dollars. When I think of that amount of money, it's not a lot. Uh, an overpass in the province costs more than four point three million now. But uh, when it comes to projects in the very early stages, I guess it is the money they need, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you know, this is um, this is money that's coming on top of other money as well. So. Uh, the 4.3 million dollars is going to four post-secondary institutions: UBC, Uvic, SFU, and VIU. But I should mention that since the inception of the BC Knowledge Development Fund in 1998, we've actually given out 862 million dollars. So, it's um, I wouldn't suggest thinking of this 4.3 million as a standalone necessary.
1: No, um, and you know it shows, I guess, an arc or a line where there's more concentration. Of, of of interest in some of the innovation that's underway what excites you right now about uh, the innovation and maybe the ecosystem in our province when it comes to some of the technologies uh do you think that BC is out in front
0: oh gosh how long do we have <laughs> Uh, we've got so much going on so um, I think uh, perhaps the way to answer that is to think of some of the innovations happening in subsectors. Um, tremendous amount happening in regards to green technology and clean technology. Um, you know a lot of people talk about uh, carbon engineering which is um, carbon sequestration from the air that's a very exciting uh, potential for sure that would have worldwide implications And there are many examples um, in the area of clean tech that could really have pivotal implications, not just for British Columbia, but everywhere. Um, We're seeing incredible innovation in biotech. Um, The mRNA and DRNA work has been extraordinary, and our biotech sector is absolutely taking off, so that's really exciting. Um, You know, I come from software and, and video games, and in the 20 years that I spent in the tech sector, one of the things that I've seen is the you know, people might not know this, but video games are ridiculously difficult to make. And the reason is, is often they're multiplayer games where you have many millions of people all around the world in different time zones wanting to have a shared experience. Um, also, the visuals that are demanded for by people um, have to be very, very, uh, well, they're world-leading. And uh, our sector in British Columbia has been phenomenal and continues to be a world leader. But what's really interesting is you see a lot of that technology moving into other spaces, for example. So a lot of the 3D visualization that um, was really uh, perfected in many ways in video games we see in mining, in forestry, coming into other sectors. Uh, when you think about VR, for example, really, really interesting. You can. I recently went on a VR tour of a, uh, a brewery, and while a person who owns brewery equipment might have previously had to bring over a technician from Germany to fix that particular piece of equipment, now they put on a couple of VR headsets and do that work uh, remotely uh, in 3D. So there's a, a lot of lot of uh, implications happening right now and uh, tremendous work all over the province.
1: You know, it's interesting. I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to see uh, the Venture Showcase at UBC Robson Square, put oh. on by Entrepreneurship at UBC. Just amazing some of the uh, the ventures and some of the mindsets with uh, with the people that are looking to solve issues internationally. Does mm-hmm. BC have a leadership role here?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question. We We have had a lot of leadership in British Columbia historically, and that continues. And, um, you know, many folks don't uh, realize the impact of British Columbia technology. We have that uh, sort of Canadian way of not necessarily, um, my grandmother used to say, don't toot your own horn. And we suffer from that a little bit. Um, but there's Canadian technology in so much of the technology that we use every day in Microsoft's uh, Outlook, for example, and in other Uh, commonly used tools many many canadian companies have been purchased by larger companies and we use their products every day without even knowing it
1: there's also this uh big competition from the u.s market to the south of us and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research money that is based uh well down the coast in areas uh like the silicon valley how do we compete how are we going to compete with them
0: Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I'll share with you that CBRE recently did a study looking at um, different tech sectors and who is coming out ahead in terms of growth. And uh, Vancouver was actually on top. And that's comparing to places like Austin and Seattle and Toronto and Montreal. And our growth rate was higher. So it's quite interesting. There's a lot going on in Vancouver. And in terms of what our competitive advantage is, ultimately, it's people. And we have a, a very dynamic ecosystem. And, you know, I just want to give a shout out to the quality of education that uh, folks get in British Columbia. Amazing post-secondary institutions. Really important, though, for us to keep that up. Um, Absolutely. I know since 2017, we've added 2,900 tech seats. We have 2,000 more coming that I'm consulting on. And, you know, we need more. So it's uh, uh, an incredible ecosystem, and um, certainly it's part of my responsibility to ensure that that continues to be so and, and further grows it.
1: Brenda Bailey, thanks so much for joining us. We hope to have you back. Very exciting indeed. Now, the Jazz Joe Hall Show continues. And it is Bruce Plackett in for Jazz. I think you can still hear or sense that collective exhale around the world. Lots of reactions still coming into that huge game yesterday, World Cup game, into penalty kicks, but Argentina finally edging out a victory. What a way to do it. Ryan Lee Hall is our technical producer and is with Vane Vanderbosch, marketing manager over at Latin Coover. Uh, Ryan, boy, uh... What a game, eh? Oh my God. Oh, uh, Bruce. What can you say? What can you say about that? I mean, it's tension. Wow. <laughs> I don't think I've seen a game that had
5: absolutely everything. Like, did you watch it, Bruce? Uh,
1: no, you see, I was watching it, but also caught it out of the corner of my eye when I had to work and do a couple other things. And I could still sense the tension with every single moment. And, uh, you know, people were just glued. And why wouldn't you be? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like,
5: you had France against Argentina. The whole build-up to this final was just incredible. You had Lionel Messi chasing that World Cup that he's been chasing his entire career to finally be cemented as, you know, the best player to ever play best the game. Best player in the world. Exactly. Daniel, exactly. C- or
1: could you? You, you can't.
5: Some people will say, hey, you couldn't have never even argued that even if he didn't win this World Cup. Again, he did go to the final with Argentina back in 2014. They lost to Germany. That one in extra time. This one almost kind of slipped away from him here too, Bruce. I mean, Argentina took that 2-0 lead, got to about just before the 80th minute, and France got a quick one. Then they got another one. And in my head as I was watching this, I was kind of thinking, like, if he loses this... That's going to be kind of the whole narrative for maybe the rest of his, you know, life even. Like, he blew that 2-0 lead. Now, Argentina did end up squeaking this one out in extra time, in penalties. And I got to say, for me, I was quite happy about it. But you know who was even more happy about it, Bruce? The Argentinians, of course. (laughs) Now, this is Telemundo commentator, Andreas Cantor. This was him on air uh, once that uh, last penalty went in. He was in tears, Bruce. <laughs> I've never seen that before for anything, you know. Canadian, and why right? would not he be? I mean, yeah, it's their first World Cup win since 1986, oh, and not yeah. only that, it's Lionel Messi that was the one that delivered it for Argentina, their first one since Diego Maradona.
1: And what about reaction in France? Did we, you know, <laughs> you know, you know uh, are you? Did you follow that? Did you look uh, at that, or I do mean, we even, you know, the French, to take care, but.
5: Of course we care. The French, from what I kind of gathered, they kind of seemed like, you know what, they felt like they should have won. They had, uh, you know, again, they had sort of the momentum going into extra time and whatnot. They won the last World Cup back in 2018. Uh, so they almost repeated here, but uh, they were just so, just so, just they missed it by this much. You can't see what I'm doing, but I'm just holding my fingers up here this much. By Bruce, this much. This much here. Now I did end up catching up with, Vane uh, Vandenbosch from uh, uh, Latin Coover. She's the marketing manager over at Latin Coover. And uh, this was her reaction to Argentina's World Cup win. Again, keep in mind, she was born and raised in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, came to Canada only about three months ago, Bruce. Hmm. This was her reaction to Argentina's win.
6: I, I couldn't sleep last night because I was so excited. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't uh I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't stop watching news from Argentina seeing the the Obelisk that is one of our most uh, important monuments uh full of people uh everyone was cheering everybody was uh completely happy so it was amazing amazing
5: that was here in Vancouver but what was the mood like over in Argentina? Of course, I had to ask her. I had to.
6: Everybody yeah. is happy. You can you can hear honks, but happy honks, not 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 angry honks. Everybody uh, is wearing the Argentinian t-shirt today. I'm still not sure if, if it's going to be a statutory holiday or not. But some companies are already giving the day off tomorrow because the Argentinian team is arriving uh, Buenos Aires today during the the night, and they're going to rest near the airport. And tomorrow morning they're going to go to the other to present the World Cup to all Argentinians, so it's going to be pretty full tomorrow. It's pretty wild, I know.
5: A statutory holiday, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Like Canada's won some gold medals in hockey. Yeah,
1: you know, Where's we've Arnoy. got our sports victories. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, is well-deserved. And I, I fully support that for Argentina. And if we ever do it uh, with, you know, world junior hockey, I support it for us, too.
5: World junior hockey? Not
1: even Olympics. We no, want to all day right, off there the world go. juniors here. Yeah.
5: I, I did have to also ask her, you know, sort of what this win here meant for Argentinians. And the answer was, you know, kind of interesting here. It means more than sort of just the football.
6: Just to give you an idea, Argentina is a country that is mostly divided in everything. It's really, really sad. I mean, we have been struggling with social, economic, and political issues for the last couple of years. I would say like 20 years or something. And it's not nice to watch that. It's not nice to see how your country gets divided and how there is a very big gap in everything. And yesterday was the first time in history that everybody that went to the obelisk were dancing around. Everybody was happy. It was completely different from anything that we have seen before.
1: You know, Ryan, I find uh, those comments from Vein very interesting because it's not just internal uh, uniting, and you see that with countries uh, when it comes to their one soccer team. Uh, you know, a very fractured country can you unite? But also you have all these tensions between various different teams or the countries that the teams represent. And a lot of that just seems to disappear. It's amazing. No, yeah, exactly here. Again, this is the largest
5: tournament in the world. I don't care, you know, you could say the the Olympics, what, this is bigger than that. And and the Olympics also does sort of have the power here as well to, you know, bring a nation together. But for a nation, as as she was sort of describing here, that is sort of divided on, you know, a lot of different things. I did talk to another Argentinian last week on Friday uh, who was also telling me the same thing, that, you know, this nation... Uh, Economically, they're not doing all that well, and there's a lot of divisions within there. That this World Cup would be the thing that would bring people together. I I, and and I did have to ask her, you know, what role sort of does Lionel Messi play in this? You know, of course, he's their golden boy, if you will. Maybe Canada's version of Sidney Crosby, if you can. I'm trying to make a comparison, way bigger than that. You know, bigger than Wayne Gretzky, even. But I did have to ask her, you know, how happy were the Argentinian people for their golden boy to finally deliver what he's been searching for his whole career? Again, remember, he's. Getting into his late 30s here now.
6: It wasn't just Argentinians; I wanted him, and Argentinians wanted him to to win the World Cup because he's an example. I mean, in terms of determination, in terms of perseverance, he did it. He dreamed about it. He worked with it, and he did it. He actually did it. He's so humble. He he has millions, and he has never forgotten his rules. Every time he goes to Argentina, he says hello to everyone. He's just a regular citizen everybody loves him
5: everybody loves him everybody loves him bruce i love him well oh, i'm not yes. even an argentina fan but you know what i'm happy for Lionel messi and so we're a lot of people that i also spoke to as well about this final
1: you know anytime you get a good story out of it and uh, i think we're touching on a good story that will last for years with uh, an individual i'm happy of course
5: Of course. I I, I did have to ask her as well about, you know, sort of what she was thinking during the whole penalty situation. Like when your team is in a penalty shootout, Bruce, you know, for me, I am an England fan. I've seen us go out on penalties year after year after year after year. They're not fun for anyone.
6: No, I couldn't watch it. I mean, my husband left. He went home. Well, not home. He sounded like wandering around the city. He couldn't watch. And I did watch the penalties from France, but I couldn't watch the Argentinian penalties. I mean, I was just uh, covering my eyes. It was wild. And it was not fun. No,
1: I Don't blame
5: her, Ryan. No, I've been there. I've been there. But hey, you know what? They came out on top on this one. I had to ask her as well, just lastly here, what sort of this means for the Argentinian community here in Vancouver.
6: It's really important, not only for me, but for Latin Couver to let people know how, how we feel about football, how us Latin Americans feel about football, because for for us it's not soccer, it's football, and it's passion. People are crazy about this in all Latin American countries. So I agreed to give interviews, and I started also contacting people because it's important for us to see, for the world and to Canada and people that are living here, to see how crazy we are about this and how fun it is and how exciting and how it makes people happy. So that was very important to us.
1: Ryan Lee Hall, thanks uh, so much for that. Our technical producer and expert with uh, all things soccer, someone that follows it so terribly closely. And big celebrations at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Boy, you could have heard some of the cheering there. We'll have more when we come back. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. Joe Hall. AM 980 CKNW Vancouver, a chorus entertainment station. Also at 101.1 FM HD2 and on the Radio Player Canada app. $134 million at the North American box office. Yeah, you'd have to be living in a cave to miss all the talk about this one. James Cameron's Avatar The Way of the Water opened this weekend. It is a huge film, both in terms of its length... Also, in terms of its story and cinematic innovation, well, Rick Forchuk is our go-to for all things film, and he took a closer look at this, and we're lucky to have him join us. Ricky, you know, I got to ask first question. We can't ignore it. Three hours, too long?
7: Yeah. Well, to be to be factual, three hours and sixteen minutes. Uh, first of all, uh, it is a bladder-challenging movie, but it's full value for the length. Uh, There was not a spot in there, Bruce, that I felt like uh, I was getting bored or looking around wondering what I should do next or wondering what would happen next. It actually just slipped by in a hurry. Um, What I liked about that long running time is that uh, in addition to this being an action-adventure movie, it's also a very strong character-driven movie, and it's all about family and the strength of family. And as a result of the long running time, you really get into the characters of the family members, the people both good and bad. And instead of something that just rushes from one set piece to the next, this allows us to understand what's happening, understand the depth of what's happening. And again, because this is so much a relevant story, uh, that of indigenous people being uh, supplanted and replaced and abused by the um, the people from outside that realm Uh, It's uh, you know, you can't help but think about uh, residential schools and you can't help but think about the kind of treatment that has happened over the years, uh, not only to indigenous people, but as we learn in the way of water. Uh, the You know, there are elements of the movie Jaws here. There are right. elements of Moby uh, Dick. And uh, the uh, it's very much a story about the environment as well as the people. So uh, long answer to a short question, how did it work for three hours and 16 minutes? I thought it worked very, very well. Now, it needed to be that length to get the job done.
1: I remember going into watching the first Avatar, and we're going back how many years now? 13 years? Uh, 13, in between? yep, 13 Yeah, years. 13 in between the two. And with the first installment, uh, I knew it was going to be a visually spectacular movie. What sort of thing do you go into a movie like this really expecting? What sort of mood do you have to be in?
7: Well, a couple of things, Bruce. It's a good question. Um, One of the things I would recommend is that um, even it's been 13 years, and even if you saw the original in the theater, uh, I decided to go over to Disney+, Plus, where the original Avatar is streaming, to watch it again, and I was amazed at how much I had forgotten about this movie. Just amazed. So if you have an opportunity to see it, uh, the original, before you go to the new one, that's great. Uh, the problem with sequels of every sort especially those that are done using a groundbreaking technique, such as the original Avatar, where Mm -hmm. an entire world was created we have never seen before, is, okay, now that's been done. What are you going to do for an encore? Uh, Well, what they've done for an encore is they've gone to the water and away from the boreal forests that were the uh, habitat of the original Navi people in the first movie. So what you can do as you approach this is just go with the flow. What I found so unique about this film is that it wasn't long before I did not feel like I was watching a movie. I felt like I was in the movie, like I was a part of the movie. The 3D, which I would really recommend here, is so all-encompassing that it makes one feel like you're really there. And when you look around at the, the habitat and the characters, it feels so real. So be prepared For an experience, and I don't want to oversell it, because when that happens, people say, well, yeah, I went and the guy said it was really, really fantastic, but it wasn't that great. Uh, I don't want to oversell it, but I do want you to know that uh, this is an experience, it's not just a film. And there's so much depth to it, and it's beyond that, it's also an action-adventure thriller. So it's got it all, and I would just be ready for a good time, Bruce, just a really good time with this film.
1: Will this have any life afterwards when it eventually comes out for the home screen?
7: Uh, yeah, it will uh, because it's still a great story. Now the the 3D is fabulous and it does need to be seen the first time at least in that format. Uh, but I think it'll have great legs. Couple of things here about this movie. Um, number one, uh, the uh, the the word is so strong that uh, it's going to be there for repeat business for a long time. Well, would not be surprised if Avatar is still running in first run theaters. By in the middle of January and maybe even beyond that because the word of mouth is so strong. And, yeah, eventually, eventually it will show up on the small screen, but they'll do so as part of a marketing plan because there are three more movies planned for this. Uh, these have been done simultaneously with Avatar The Way of Water, and um, each one of these is going to be a set piece unto itself, and I think we're going to be set up with a, you know, probably a DVD release with all kinds of outtakes and all kinds of interviews, James Cameron is a genius. He's a certifiable genius. And the job he's done here to both entertain and inform us is phenomenal. I think this one will live many lives beyond just this time in the theater, Bruce.
1: Do you think this is James Cameron's final piece?
7: Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I think that um, he is so good at what he does and such a smart director yeah. and such a smart writer of story that anything he does stands alone. I mean, at one point when he did Titanic, we would say, well, that would be the ultimate. Right. Uh, but af- after Titanic, we have Avatar. Now we have Avatar, then we have water. And I don't know what else he has up his sleeve, but uh, he's a remarkable individual. I was just talking with somebody who's a Hollywood writer on the phone this morning, and he had just come from a meeting with James Cameron. And he said, you know, the guy really gets a bum rap in the medium. He's one of the warmest, smartest, uh, most interesting people I've ever spent time with. And I've never had the opportunity to spend time with James Cameron. But I know he gets knocked around quite a bit in media. But uh, those who are on the inside... Uh, just revel in his genius and uh, revel in the light. So I, I think he's a remarkable person. I think this legacy that he's leaving with the kinds of films that he's produced, is just sensational. A uh, uh, hundred years from now, people will still be marveling at them, I'm sure.
1: Well, I guess we're too late for the Oscars uh, this year, but The Way of the Water could be around for some, uh, some picking up some statues uh, the following year.
7: Yeah, well, it's going to be all about the cinematography, uh, the underwater scenes. I think that that's where it will be. It's not likely to get any nominations for Best Actor uh, or Best Actress or Best Supporting Anything, but for sure cinematography, for sure screenplay, uh, hopefully Best Picture, although big, big movies like this rarely get Oscar consideration in that regard.
1: But it is an experience, and thank you so much to Rick Forchuk for that. Have a safe and happy holiday.
7: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.